welcome back to iDren Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. And today's Jill's pin is a pin of Lady Justice in honor of our guest who has a podcast called Justice Matters. And also a daily show on YouTube. Um, So it seems like Donald Trump's legal troubles are growing by the day. On the federal level, every indication is that special counsel Jack Smith is running at full speed in his investigations into the Mar-a-Lago documents and the January 6th cases. On the state and local levels, there's the E. Jean Carroll lawsuit, the Fulton County District Attorney's lawsuit, where charges are expected eminently, according to the District Attorney Fannie Willis, and also new reporting today um, from a forewoman uh, who, who it overlooks the investigation or the grand jury, plus continuing investigations into his business dealings in New York. Last week, we also got new evidence of a key element of proof in Dominion's defamation lawsuit against Fox News, proof that shows anchors like Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Laura Ingram knew that Donald Trump's big lie was a lie, yet still told their audience that the election was fraudulent. Could this case be the end of Fox News? And how concerned should Trump be? Uh, uh, and should should Trump be about all the legal challenges against him? I'd say very, but more importantly, we have a um, lot going on, including yesterday we got news that Speaker McCarthy is tilting the playing field by giving Tucker Carlson 41,000 hours of previously unseen tapes of the January 6th violence, something I think is despicable and useless. If there had been anything exculpatory, Republicans would have put it out already. Surely Fox will manipulate the footage, and I look forward to our guest's take on that as well. He is Glenn Kirshner. You likely have seen him on MSNBC, where he is a legal analyst, His legal career began in 1988 when he became an army prosecutor. And I will note that that was like eight years after I left being general counsel of the army, which shows our age difference, but oh well. Um, He became an army prosecutor then. And then six years later, he joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia, where he tried a variety of cases, including homicides and RICO cases, for 24 years. He left the office in 2018 and has since then become a very important voice on television and through his podcast and daily show. Thanks so much, Glenn, for joining us. We're really glad to have you here today. Well, Jill and Victor, I'm thrilled to be with you. This is a real pleasure. And boy, given the parade of horribles that Victor just shared with the viewers, I might call them a parade of wonderfuls. There's so much (laughs) accountability bearing down on Donald Trump that Boy, we have a lot to talk about. Okay, so let's start with the breaking news out of Georgia, uh, which involves the forewoman saying that the grand jury had recommended several indictments and told the New York Times that it's not a short list, that we looked at a variety of points in the report. You're not going to be shocked, she said. It's not rocket science. You won't be too surprised. How do you read that, Glenn? You know, I I think when the release of the special grand jury report uh, was made and we saw, you know, we didn't see much, but a few of the things that we did see were, were pretty blockbuster. One, the grand jury voted unanimously. There was no fraud undermining the election's results. What that did was it squarely put the lie to Donald Trump's corrupt ask 
of Brad Raffensperger, just give me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. That was important. The second thing that was important was uh, one or more of the, of the witnesses lied to the grand jury. Now, some people might feel like that's a, a, a bad development. As a former career prosecutor, um, that made my pulse quicken a little bit because then that would give the prosecutors leverage, leverage over the lying witnesses. Because when our witnesses go in and lie to the grand jury, before I ever put witnesses in, I promised them that if they lied, I would consider asking the grand jurors to indict them for perjury if the lie was about a material matter, matter relevant to the grand jury's investigation, obstruction of justice for obstructing the grand jury investigation, accessory after the fact, because the lie probably had the effect of helping the target of the investigation get away with his or her crimes, and maybe even will throw in conspiracy if the evidence supported it. Mm -hmm. So witnesses who, you know, before they went into the grand jury and lied, DA Fonnie Willis might have had no leverage against them. Once they lied, she has a lot of leverage. She can charge them, flip them, develop them as cooperating witnesses, and use them to further her investigation. So that was another really important development in the highly redacted report. And then the third was the, the, the sentence that said, um, Judge, here are our recommendations on indictments and relevant statutes, inferentially relevant statutes that have been violated. And then there were like six pages of redactions. What does that tell us? Whole bunch of folks are about to be indicted. And now we have what I consider a pretty unusual development. The forewoman of the grand jury is giving interviews. That's unusual. Usually the grand jurors kind of keep everything to themselves. But the L.A. Times reported that she was given dispensation by the judge, apparently, to give interviews. And she was given some restrictions on what she could and couldn't say. And the reporter who interviewed her for the L.A. Times actually included in the article that she stuck with those ground rules. But she said, as Jill mentioned, some really important things. She said that there are about to be multiple indictments. She said it is not a short list. She said there will be no surprises. She said, I'm trying to be delicate about this. But she also said some other things that I think were really interesting. She said that uh, Rudy Giuliani, for example, he was really funny while he was invoking privileges. OK, so we know Rudy invoked privileges. We know some people, she, she disclosed, invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. That is one of the privileges a witness might be able to invoke. And she said something that really piqued my interest. She said some of the witnesses were given immunity before they entered the grand jury. Some were immunized in the grand jury, something I've done before. We call it pocket immunity. Why do we call it pocket immunity? Because when we put a witness before the grand jury or when we put a witness on the stand at trial, we might not know whether that witness is going to testify, waive their right against self-incrimination and tell the truth or plead the fifth, invoke their privilege. That's why we would sometimes get immunity in federal court. We call it a compulsion order and we would have it figuratively in our back pocket or in our litigation bag. And if the witness pled the fifth, tried to avoid testifying, we would serve it on them. That's why we call it pocket immunity. The, the forewoman of the grand jury indicated 
that there were some people who were on the receiving end of pocket immunity in Fonnie Willis's grand jury. I am so intrigued. I am so encouraged that it looks like accountability is finally going to come in at least one jurisdiction for the crimes of Donald Trump and some of his criminal associates. So I, I agree it's encouraging, but I do want to point out that normally you would ask for a proffer from somebody before immunizing them. You would want to know what they know and what they would say before you're willing to immunize them. So a last minute pocket immunity is unusual. It is not a common thing. Normally it is negotiated well in advance and you know in advance before you put someone on the stand. So I just wanted to put that in, in that context. And I know Victor had a follow-up question. Well, I, I'm wondering, do you see any um, scenario in which Donald Trump is not on the list of um, possible indictments? So do I? No, not, not this old prosecutor. I mean, we see the evidence that has just been publicly reported and there's a mountain of evidence incriminating Donald Trump well beyond probable cause. Indeed, at a minimum, there was a federal judge, David Carter in California, who after an evidentiary hearing about John Eastman, his emails and whether they should be disclosed or whether they enjoyed a privilege, Judge Carter concluded by a preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, that's 51%. Probable cause for indictment and arrest is well below 51%. He concluded that Donald Trump and John Eastman together committed two federal felony offenses, obstructing the official proceedings of Congress and a conspiracy to commit offenses against or defraud the United States, what we call a 371 conspiracy. So I don't see how hmm. funny Willis, what, you know, plus, of course, there's the phone call. Right. Yeah, yeah. I don't see how she doesn't have enough evidence to indict Donald Trump. And I do think the forewoman gave a little bit of a hint because when she was yeah. pressed by the reporters, is Donald Trump one of the people? She said, let's put it this way. There will be no surprises. Uh, I think you can read between those lines. Do you think those lines um, possibly went beyond what the judge had given her permission to do? I hope not, Jill. And if so, you know, if so, I don't think there will be any legal right that will vest in the people who are going to be indicted to challenge the indictment. I do think it will give Donald Trump yet another opportunity to rile up his supporters and, and incite them to violence. I mean, I, I can't imagine that Donald Trump's first post on his, you know, third rate social media platform <laughs> after he learns he's been indicted and the arraignment date has been set and announced. You know, his first post is going to be come to Atlanta for my arraignment will be wild. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a question about the timeline. I, um, Fannie Willis said that the charges in this Georgia election case are eminent. Does what the forewoman said change us at all? And can you explain to us when the grand when they do make indictments, what does it look like from there? So, you know, imminent is in the eye of the beholder. Now, D.A. Willis said that three to four weeks ago. And, you know, some people might say imminent has already come and gone. Listen, we need to give D.A. Willis enough time to do her job. I have a feeling, you know, there's a really interesting opinion piece by Norm Eisen and Idanya Perry and, oh, a third person. I'm sorry, I'm not remembering her name. Um, talking about the merits of a narrow prosecution on maybe one or two charges, maybe a marquee charge like soliciting election fraud 
courtesy of that phone call. You know, I, I contend that when you want to prove up soliciting election fraud, this trial will be a just press play trial. Like when I tried RICO cases and I had wiretap evidence and I could just press play and the jurors got to hear the defendant sitting across the courtroom committing the crime on an audio recording, that's a just press play trial. However, I maintain that, you know, Fawny Willis, who has a proven track record of bringing RICO cases, racketeer influenced and corrupt organization cases against, you know, groups, enterprises, gangs, um, who are committing crime in concert, who are committing a series of crimes, a pattern of racketeering acts. I think that's the way to go. Why? Because that gives the jury the power of context. It won't just be one crime, a marquee crime, where the defense team will focus like a laser beam trying to defeat the proof uh, you know, in connection with that one crime. Give it to them all. Give them the power of context. Let the jury see and understand that this is a series of crimes designed to retain the power of the presidency unlawfully. I hope that's the way she chooses to go. You know, now the timing moving forward, once we get the indictments, which we were told were imminent, we don't know exactly what that means. It feels like they're coming soon. An arraignment date will be set. Donald Trump and anybody else who's been indicted will appear to be arraigned on the indictment. It's just formally reading somebody the charges. And then a future court date, status hearing date will be set. And the trial will, the, the case will proceed. Ultimately, a trial date will be set. If I had to guess, rule of thumb, somewhere between six months and a year down the road. And one of the big questions will be, what does the judge do with all of these defendants pending trial? I think lots of people would like to say Donald Trump is either a flight risk or, the, or a danger to the community, which are the only two reasons a judge is permitted to detain somebody pending trial. And the judge has to make that finding by clear and convincing evidence, a standard above probable cause and above a preponderance. And I would be surprised if any judge has an appetite for putting Donald Trump or, you know, Giuliani or Meadows or whoever else ends up being indicted um, in, in detention pending trial. I could see maybe home detention, maybe some sort of monitoring, you know, release with conditions. But that will be the determination that the judge will have to make. What do I do with all these defendants pending trial? So it related to that, in terms of the timing, there are a couple of interesting questions that arise. One is whether the delay from her use of the word imminent, which I'm in that crowd of, it's gone, <laughs> it's no longer imminent, um, is that this piece about the perjury may be the clue and that maybe she's now negotiating, as you said, she now has leverage over those witnesses that she didn't have before. And so maybe, She's trying to flip them to cooperating and stopping the perjury and telling the truth. And that that's what's causing the delay while she works with them. The other question, and so I'll put them both to you at the same time, is that in Georgia, because the special grand jury doesn't have indictment power, it then has to go to a regular grand jury that does. And those grand juries sit for two months. The grand jury that was in session, that is in session, expires February 28th. A new one starts in March. That maybe she was waiting for the March grand jury to start because there is also a time deadline that starts at the end of a grand jury in terms of getting to trial. So 
What do you think of those two issues as possible reasons for the indictment not following the report quickly? Absolutely um, uh, valid that she might now be doing some more work as a result of the recommendations that were made by the special grand jury. As you say, maybe trying to use the grand jury's findings that one or more witnesses lied as leverage and to work that through before she ultimately has to return her indictments. You know, the, the one thing that I'll say, and, and one of the reasons I've been really disappointed with my old professional home, the Department of Justice, is there's nothing that says you have to indict everybody at the same time in one big indictment. That was not our practice. We would indict one or more people on the most readily provable charges, and then we would continue to investigate and build in the grand jury. We would add charges, we would add defendants, we might add a conspiracy charge, and we would return a series of superseding indictments. Absolutely an appropriate way to proceed. So I find it really curious, and, and Jill, given your experience, I'd love to hear your take on, on the fact that not a single suit of the insurrection, all the boots of the insurrection, the people that Donald Trump said, go to the Capitol, fight like hell, or you won't have a country anymore, now stop the steal. They're being indicted, prosecuted, convicted, and imprisoned. Yet not a single suit, not a single member of the hierarchy or the command structure of the insurrection has been held accountable for one minute, as best we can tell, you know, based on public reporting. I feel like that's a deep injustice at play in America right now. And I'm surprised we haven't seen other charges and people flipping as they work their way up the command structure. I'm a little disappointed that they left it all to Fannie Willis to be the first prosecutor in this nation to take to take on a former president who committed crimes to overturn our democracy. That's a federal crime. This is a federal problem. It should have been handled federally first, promptly to deter others from engaging in this conduct. And it hasn't been. Fawny Willis is up to the task, but I sure hope this inspires the Department of Justice to accelerate its time frame. Right. And I, we will get to that because our next set of questions we wanted to ask you about was Jack Smith, the special counsel investigating Donald Trump. Um, so we'll get to that, but I'll, I'll answer your question. I, of course, share your disappointment in the lack of federal action. And also remember, uh, D.A. Bragg also didn't take action. So there's a lot of inaction. And I want to point our audience to an op-ed that um, I read online today by Garrett Graff in the New York Times about whether or not Ford's pardon was a very bad mistake for the future, something that I have said for a long time it was. I wanted to indict Richard Nixon during his presidency. I then wanted to indict him when we weren't allowed to do that after he resigned and before he got pardoned. And I do think that we'd be having a different conversation today, Glenn, if that indictment had happened. We wouldn't be debating, could we or couldn't we survive as a democracy if we indict the no. former president? If the former president has committed clear cases of crimes, we will survive. We will not survive if we let presidents commit crimes and say they can't be indicted while they're president. And then we refuse to indict them when they're not. So I'm all for taking action. Again, assuming there is adequate, not just adequate, that there is more than adequate evidence of crimes. 
in Watergate, there certainly was. As a public viewing, not knowing all the evidence, it sure looks like there is against Donald Trump. But so let's move on to um, the Jack Smith investigation. And Victor, why don't you take the first question? Sure. So um, last week, um, I guess Jack Smith, his his uh, office subpoenaed uh, Mark Meadows and the week before they subpoenaed Mike Pence. Um, what should we make of these rounds of subpoenas just in terms of where the case is and what Jack Smith wants to know from them? So one of the ways to view the fact that a former vice president, former chief of staff, each of whom have some of the most directly incriminating evidence and information about Donald Trump. I mean, I think that's inarguable. The fact that they've been subpoenaed. Ordinarily, when we're running large-scale investigations of conspiracies, of criminal enterprises, you wait until the very end to subpoena the really high-value witnesses because you want to develop all of the evidence before you step to them so you can confront them with all of the evidence rather than not having a completely informed impression of what they know and what you believe you need to extract out of them by way of information and evidence. So it, it sends the signal that Jack Smith is sort of up at the pinnacle of the investigation. Usually, once we get to that stage in a grand jury investigation, the next stop is indictments. Now, let me take a couple of other things on about those two subpoenas, and maybe we'll get to the fact that they're subpoenaing Donald Trump's lawyers, which is mind-blowing, appropriate, yeah. but mind-blowing. Um, so I was a little disappointed when I saw Mark Meadows was subpoenaed because it seems like Mark Meadows should be a target of the criminal investigation, given everything we've learned about his role in what looks to be a conspiracy against the United States, including he's acting as a clearinghouse for treasonous tr phone calls and text messages that are coming in from lawmakers and Supreme Court justices, spouses, and I mean, all of which is just beyond belief. But here's the thing. We ordinarily don't subpoena somebody that we intend to indict. We can, under the U.S. Attorney's Manual, we can seek permission for it, but we almost never do because the target of the investigation has an automatic built-in Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. It is the person we're seeking to indict. So it would be a futile exercise to subpoena that person only to put them before the grand jury to say, I plead the fifth. We ordinarily don't do it. So I was a little let down when I saw that Mark Meadows had been subpoenaed. Maybe that's an indication that Jack Smith is not intending to indict him, but not necessarily. It could also be that um, you know he's giving Mark Meadows the opportunity to testify. He will be advised of his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination before he appears before the grand jury. We do that to every witness before we place them before the grand jury. And then if he pleads the fifth, then Jack Smith will have a decision to make. Do I have enough evidence to indict him for crimes? Or if I really need his testimony and I don't have enough to indict him, do I consider granting him immunity? That's fraught with peril because then it makes it much more difficult to prosecute him in the future. Not impossible, but very challenging. Um, so the other outside, the other outlier is he may have given Mark Meadows a subpoena as cover. What do I mean by that? Well, maybe Mark Meadows has been cooperating, but he wants it to appear to the outside world like he hasn't been 
So it's like, give me a subpoena and that won't send the signal that I've been cooperating all along. I have no idea if that's what's going on, but it's a possibility. Um, with respect to Mike Pence, you know, he is pretty much, in my estimation, the smallest man in America because he has information that is deeply incriminating about Donald Trump, like the pressure campaign Donald Trump waged on him to get him to violate the law, the Electoral Count Act. And then when he wouldn't, to Mike Pence's credit, he didn't join Donald Trump's conspiracy. As best we can tell, he stood up and did the right thing. And Donald Trump converted him from a witness to a victim. And yet Mike Pence still refuses to testify. He'll sell yeah. a book. He'll disclose things for profit, but he won't disclose them first to the J6 committee, now to the grand jury to help our democracy move forward and heal. He's the smallest man in America. And we'll have to see. I, I do believe he will ultimately lose the battle to invoke the privilege whether it's speech or debate, executive privilege or anything else, I think he'll lose those battles and he will ultimately be forced to testify. So I want to explore the uh, privileges before we even get to Evan Corcoran, who is the lawyer who's recently been subpoenaed, and I do want to get to him. But even before that, I want to just add one additional uh, alternative for why he might have been subpoenaed is that there is enough evidence to indict him. And it seems like there's a lot of evidence against him, but that his knowledge is so important to the case against a higher up, obviously that would be Donald Trump, that they're willing to forego prosecuting him. So it's not that they don't have enough evidence. It is they have enough, but they prefer to use his knowledge to get someone else. But let's then look at the privileges, which, um, it, in just these two cases are quite interesting. I mean, Pence originally claimed that he couldn't be forced to testify before Congress because he was a member of the executive branch and that would <laughs> violate separation of powers. Now he's saying, oh no, I'm actually a member of the legislative branch and therefore I have a speech and debate privilege. So he's now totally flipped it on its head. Um, on the other hand, Meadows may have fifth amendment privilege as well as executive privilege. So let's, Let's just talk very briefly to give some understanding to our audience about what do those privileges mean? And then we'll get to the attorney-client privilege and the crime fraud exception when we talk about Corcoran. Yeah, so I think we can do away with Meadows' privileges pretty easily. First of all, he has the Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. That is a privilege he can assert. And any judge looking at whether he has a viable Fifth would absolutely rule he has a viable fifth. And then yeah. he can either waive it, which I think unlikely, or he can force Jack Smith to decide whether to grant him immunity to extinguish that privilege. Yeah. Um, with respect to executive privilege, I think that's been litigated a couple of times. Primarily, it is the sitting president's privilege to invoke or waive. Obviously, Joe Biden has been waiving all along because he wants to you know, get to the bottom of the crimes that have been committed to try to hold folk accountable and, and help repair our democracy. So I think any way you cut it, if Meadows continues to push the executive privilege claim, he can litigate it up and down the chain, but he's going to lose. And Jill, I can't tell you how many times I've quoted you when you've talked about how in 1974, the courts were able to litigate 
the subpoena for the tapes in what, three to four months from April, you say, of 74 through July of 74. The courts can do it if they choose to do it in an expedient fashion. Let's hope they take that same yeah. approach here. Yeah, that is exactly correct. And, yeah. and more or as important is that the fundamental determination of the U.S. v. Nixon court was that the executive privilege is one that will surrender to the needs of a federal grand jury in a criminal case where the evidence is important, the executive privilege will be waived. And so I would say in this case, the testimony of Meadows would fall within that rubric and would be something that he would be ordered to testify. It is not an absolute privilege that can never be breached. But okay, so let, let's move to maybe the um, uh, questions about Evan Corcoran, who was responsible for, in part, the production of the documents from Mar-a-Lago. And he has been subpoenaed and will certainly claim attorney-client privilege. And there will be an argument about the fact that he was part of committing a crime and therefore doesn't have the privilege. What do you think of that? Yeah, so full disclosure, I know Evan, I worked with him. We had a case in common a very long time ago when he was with the Department of Justice. Um, I, I'm sorry to see the way he has gone in recent years and the choices he's made. Um, so I, I think where, where we are now with Donald Trump's two lawyers who have been presented to the grand jury, maybe three, I'm not sure if Epstein has, but Christina uh, Bob reportedly testified. We didn't hear anything about any litigation about her invoking executive privilege. That doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but this kind of litigation that's conducted by Chief Judge Beryl Howell, who has supervisory authority over the grand jury, is secret. We don't get to know. But what we do know is there's been no reporting. What, what we've learned is Christina Bob was presented to the grand jury, apparently testified. Then we moved on to Evan Corcoran. He was placed before the grand jury once, and it looks like he invoked the attorney-client privilege. Not surprisingly, because we go back to what I said a few minutes ago, rarely do federal prosecutors subpoena the, the lawyers who are defending the target of a criminal investigation. It's just not done because there is an automatic attorney-client privilege that usually we can't overcome and we don't even try unless it looks like the attorney and the client might be involved in crime together hmm. or... I want to hasten to add, you know, it could be that Donald Trump was using Evan Corcoran unwittingly to commit obstruction of justice by lying to Evan Corcoran and saying, I've given back all the documents. We know that wasn't true because an FBI search pursuant to a judicially authorized search warrant found more classified documents in Donald Trump's desk drawers. Now, it may be Donald Trump was lying to Evan Corcoran and convinced him to author the certification saying, look, we gave it all back that Christina Bob then signed a little bit unusual. Yeah. The procedure they followed almost feels like they're trying to insulate one another along the way. Or the, the even worse alternative is Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran were committing a crime together. And Evan knew that what he was doing um, was a crime and was subject to the crime fraud exception. So once the, you can prove that the, the defendant, either with or without 
the knowing assistance of his lawyer is engaged in this kind of fraud, you can pierce the attorney-client relationship and force the attorney to testify about and in a very real sense against the client. That's why the next thing I would expect to see is Evan Corcoran withdrawing from representation of Donald Trump. Hmm. Very interesting. So I, I'm wondering, I just want to take a step back and, and ask or I guess zoom out and ask you, given that Jack Smith um, is overlooking both this uh, documents case as well as January 6th, based off of the publicly evident, uh, publicly available evidence and what we've seen so far, do you feel like the Mar-a-Lago case is easier to bring charges against Trump than January 6th or the other way around? Um, you know, I, I think it's it's easier to bring a, you know, mishandling of classified documents, an obstruction of justice charge for violating the grand jury subpoena. That one seems to be pretty easy to prove. Um, so I think, you know, if Jack Smith had to decide which indictment to bring first, the Mar-a-Lago documents case seems to be the one that is ripe to be brought. Now, I also maintain the insurrection investigation. It seems like they could have indicted any number of people, not necessarily all the way up to Trump, but they, they should have been working their way up the command structure, and they haven't been. So um, it feels to me at this point like Fawny Willis will probably be first out of the, out of the blocks, then maybe the Mar-a-Lago document crimes, then maybe the insurrection. And I don't have a lot of hope for the way Alvin Bragg is conducting matters in mm. New York, but that is still in the mix. And they claim they've reinvigorated the Stormy Daniels hush money payment crimes. We'll see if that comes to fruition. Why are you doubtful about his statement that he's back on the case? Be because, Jill, it seems to me that when you have career prosecutors like uh, Mark Pomerantz and Carrie Dunn, who were the ones responsible for conducting the investigation into Trump and his organization, and they recommend to a new incoming district attorney, we've got the goods, we should indict him, and we believe we have enough to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And by all accounts, Bragg kills the investigation. The reporting was that he was even having documents and evidence returned to witnesses and organizations from which they were obtained. And then here's what really irks me. You proved against, you know, the Trump organization, Trump's namesake, that the organization and his chief financial officer were involved in a 15 year long criminal scheme to defraud in the first degree, massive systemic tax fraud. And you had the prosecutor argue in closing arguments, ladies and gentlemen, the evidence that you've seen during the course of this trial against the Trump organization proves that Donald Trump explicitly approved the fraud. Well, I'm sorry if you had that evidence, Donald Trump should have been charged. He wasn't. I don't know why. It feels to me like it's almost political that Alvin Bragg is now saying, wait, wait, we're back in the Donald Trump investigation game because maybe I'll be, you know, running for re-election sometime soon. I, I don't like any of it. It'll be interesting, as you said, to see what happens in that particular case, as well as all these other cases. There are so many. Who, who do you think um, are the likeliest uh, indictees in the uh, Department of Justice investigation of January 6th? You know, I, I am waiting for somebody from the Willard War Room, that sort of that cabal of, 
you know, Rudy and Mike Flynn and Roger Stone and Steve Bannon and all of these folks who seem to be low hanging criminal fruit, somebody to be indicted there. You know, I, I really think the John Eastman's of the world, yeah. the Jeffrey Clark's, who has kind of a special place um, in my estimation, because when you're a high DOJ official and you corrupt and weaponize the Department of Justice by trying to, you know, do some dirty favors for a criminal president, that's that's my former professional home. And that is such an abuse of the American people and the power that we entrust you with, I sure hope. Jeffrey Clark is indicted. I think Mark Meadows richly deserves an indictment. I think members of Congress, six of whom who asked for pardons, and you only ask for a pardon if you believe you've committed a crime and you want to get away with it. I hope they're looking at members of Congress. I'm less optimistic that we're going to see members of Congress indicted, though we might. But I want to go back to the LA Times reporting because there was one wonderful passage from the forewoman of the grand jury in the Georgia um, case. And she said that they enjoyed learning about the inner workings of the White House from Cassidy Hutchinson, who the forewoman said was much more forthcoming than her old boss, former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows. That to me seems yeah. to be foreshadowing that Meadows might be one of the people that they believe lied to them. So listen, Mark Meadows has earned himself a marquee spot on a conspiracy indictment. And we know that Tim Heafy, who served as a top staffer on the January 6th House Committee, I think he told one of the outlets that um, he expects DOJ to charge four people specifically, Rudy, Mark, Jeff, Clark, and John Eastman. So we'll see what happens on that end. But I, I want to go back to the uh, classified documents case. Just on the matter of that classified documents case, Trump isn't the only one who took classified documents with him. Joe Biden and Mike Pence did as well, but have cooperated with law enforcement, unlike Trump. I'm wondering if you can think of any type of reform that Congress or maybe we can pursue that can happen to make sure that former presidents don't take classified documents so easily. Yeah, I think that, first of all, the intelligence professionals, when they give presidents and high government officials classified briefings, they need to take the documents back out with them. I'm sorry. I know it must be hard to say no to a, a president or a vice president or a high government official, but I think it's the job of those who take on the responsibility of being intelligence professionals yeah. to say, you know, there's a reason that we handle these things in a certain way, Mr. President. So and, and we just need to be stronger about caring more about the security of our nation than we care about catering to or kowtowing to or not offending a high government official. That is part of the calculation. I, I, look, I don't pretend to know much about the inner workings of, of, of these kind of, of things. That wasn't my bailiwick. But, uh, but the other thing I do think is now maybe we need some procedures in place that when high government officials are leaving office, we have a, an intelligence official assigned to assist in the packing up process so right. we don't see the right. same problem. And I will say, I actually think Given the way Joe Biden and Mike Pence handled the revelation that they had some government documents that they shouldn't have, things that should go back to the National Archives, the way they handled that by notifying the proper authorities, by inviting people in to, to search their, their, their stuff, right, their, their office, their home, to make sure they didn't miss anything, to make sure the government has back everything 
it should have back. I don't think that that diminishes the chances that Trump will be indicted. I think what it does is it highlights the fact that, yes, there's a problem and good, thoughtful public servants or former public servants handle the prop the problem properly. And Donald Trump doesn't. Donald Trump hides and lies and misdirects and gets his lawyers to uh, certify falsely that they've given everything back. That's why he has still earned himself an indictment for the documents crimes. And Biden and Pence, based on the reporting, I don't think have done anything that is prosecutable. And people should never forget that we had to get a search warrant to get the documents out of Donald Trump's hands. No judge ever issued a search warrant uh, for, for Joe Biden or for Mike Pence's home or offices. So Glenn, I wanna move to um, the Dominion case, but I wanna ask one other trial question first, and that has to do with the E. Jean Carroll case, which um, isn't getting as much attention as I think it deserves and should get. And one of the particular issues is the federal government saying, no, we'll step in in the place of Donald Trump because he was acting in the scope of his authority as president in accusing her of being a liar and of defaming her. And so therefore it is us who has to defend. What do you, what's going on? What's the current status? What do you think of that argument? Uh, I, to say I don't like that argument is a gross understatement because I think it tears at the moral fabric of what our institutions should be about. I don't pretend Merrick Garland didn't have his hands full trying to rebuild the, the reputation of the Department of Justice. Um, but I think as a matter of principle, we shouldn't take the position that just because somebody is the president, anything they say or do is within the scope of their official duties. When you defame somebody you are alleged to have sexually assaulted, you can't possibly say it is part of a, of a president's official duties to defame sexual assault victims. I'm sorry, that was the wrong decision by the Department of Justice. And I don't wanna hear the slippery slope that, well, if we don't defend Donald Trump, then we'll never be able to defend a future president. First of all, that's inaccurate because you have to make judgment calls every day. Second, I don't want you to defend a future president who defames somebody they're alleged to have sexually assaulted. And, and here's the other thing, Jill, I don't wanna overreach on this subject, but that to me feels almost as bad as the Biden administration, we have to be, you know, call it the way we see it, mm -hmm. saying that MBS has complete head of state immunity, even though it looks like he approved the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. I'm sorry. There comes a time when you have to stand up and do what's right and do what's morally appropriate, even if you're going to have to make judgment decisions in the future that may be made more challenging because of the judgment you made in this case. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. There's moral and there's immoral. And the Department of Justice and Merrick Garland needs to be more concerned with the morality of the positions they take and not just this sort of superficial institutional um, preservation that they seem so hellbound to promote above 
the decisions they're making in each case. Although I do think that there is such a simple way around to explain this one, because to argue that a alleged rape that happened dozens of years before he was president falls within the presidential job description to talk about is so factually vacant that you don't have to get to even a moral judgment. It's just factually wrong and there should be no reason to invoke it. But let's, Victor, why don't you go ahead with Dominion? Yeah, so this is the last case we want to talk to you about is this Dominion uh, $1.6 billion uh, defamation case against Fox News, um, which challenges Fox News for spreading lies about Dominion election machines. We saw Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity intentionally lie to their audience. I'm wondering if you think this case could be the end for Fox News and if there's anything to hold those um, hosts accountable for what they told their audience. Yeah, what, what a great question. I don't know if it will be the end of Fox News. It does feel like they will pay dearly for defaming Virginia uh, uh, Dominion voting systems. You know, they'll probably get every penny of the $1.7 billion that they are seeking in damages. Hmm. Um, and, and But I have no idea if Fox's financial standing is such that that's pocket change for them or that actually could spell the end of Fox. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. You know, I'm really troubled by a lack of accountability for the hosts themselves. And let, let me plant this seed. And, and some you all can yell at me if you think I'm uh, stepping a toe over the First Amendment protections. You know, we know that defamation is very hard to prove, right? Actual malice. You need to know or be or just recklessly disregard the falsity of the statements that are harming the reputation or the financial prospects of another. And I know we automatically jump to a First Amendment argument that, you know, even lies are protected. I, I agree. You know, listen, I, I embrace the breadth and width of the First Amendment protections. But at some point, I think we need to learn our lessons and we need to decide if intentionally false statements by, by news, faux news, anchors, that are reasonably likely to inspire and result in imminent lawlessness, particularly imminent violent conduct, whether those are the kind of things we need to try to grab hold of legally. Now, through legislation, that's probably not likely for the next two years, given the slim majority, Republican majority in the House, but through regulations, through executive orders, now, the Brandenburg test requires more than that. It requires an intent to incite imminent lawlessness or imminent violence. And that's the part that holds a lot of people up. And I agree that the Brandenburg test is there, right? And it sets parameters. But here's what gets me. And here's where I would, I would love your, your thoughts, your input on this. The Republicans don't sit around and say, you know what? We can't pass unduly restrictive laws regarding a, women, a woman's right to make her own privacy decisions in the reproductive arena. They don't sit around and say, we can't, we can't pass these unduly restrictive laws because Roe v. Wade. Yeah. They don't say that. What do they do? They pass unduly restrictive laws and they try to get the court to change Roe v. Wade and sadly, they were successful. We didn't see Donald Trump 
10 days into his presidency say, I can't sign a Muslim ban. The courts will strike it down. He just did it. And what happened? The courts blocked the first one and the second one and the third one. And each time he went back, he retooled, he reworked, he redrafted. And the fourth go round, he succeeded in finding five justices who were apparently just as hateful and just as determined to ban people from coming to America because of the religion they practice and got it approved. What does that tell us? It tells us that we can't sit back and just say, First Amendment, nothing we can do. We need to take a chance with executive orders and with regulations by the FCC and every other agency that has a dog in the fight and be forward leaning. We're going to try to be constitutional, but we have to take these chances and not be afraid of litigation. And then we go in and we litigate the constitutionality of a forward leaning executive order to stop Fox from doing what it's doing, intentionally lying at the at the extreme detriment of potentially causing violence. And if we lose, if we win in court, we win and the American people win and we're safer and we're a better country. But if we lose, we take a play from the Trump playbook. We retool, we redraft, we get more deep constitutional thinkers in and we try to do it right. And eventually we will get it right. I don't care that Brandenburg is out there. Brandenburg can be revisited just like the forces of evil caused the Supreme Court to revisit Roe v. Wade. We We need to get aggressive. We need to get proactive. We can't just sit back and let intractable problems like like runaway gun violence and unrestricted access to assault rifles or hate speech designed to incite and likely to incite violence. We can't just keep saying nothing we can do about those things. It's time to do it and fight it in court. Okay, so before we go to our favorite last question for guests, I just want to say I interpreted Victor's question a little differently than you did. And I think, and maybe this isn't what he meant, but I was interpreting his saying, is the Dominion case the end of Fox News, not because of the financial damages, which according to what I've read, 1.6 billion, they'll be able to pay it. It will be significant. It will hurt them dramatically, but they can't keep doing it. And that means they can't keep lying. And if you remember from the dialogue of emails and texts that we've now seen in the discovery process, their revenues were going down as soon as they stopped lying to their, their listeners. And so I'm thinking that Dominion could end the Fox News, cha- I hate calling it Fox News, the Fox Channel, because they can't lie to their people anymore. And so that's what I That's what I would answer is that, yeah, I think that this could be a significant way to end Fox News. Yeah, the marketplace may end up ending Fox News if they really believe it will no longer be profitable to lie. I'm just I just think they're going to find ways to lie and and pull those gullible viewers back in. And, you know, we'll we'll see. You know, Glenn, I totally agree with what you said earlier on that, you know, I mean, Republicans just have no shame and they have no kind of floor or bottom of, of where they're going to go in, in order to destroy democracy. And I think, you know, there's an argument to be said about Democrats taking the high road, but, you know, Republicans are just going to keep doing this. And I agree with you that it's time for Democrats, I think, to Sounds take a like chance and to do this. Sounds like a political candidate. Yes. 
<laughs> could be, <laughs> could be. But uh, we have one favorite question that we always ask uh, our guests, which is um, your advice for our audience. I know you teach um, college students at American University as well as George Washington. Um, what is your advice to young people? And I know you also run the show um, Justice Matters about kind of what our role is in defending justice and standing up uh, uh, in pursuit of justice. I mean, the, the role is to get involved, right? Um, in any way you can. I mean, not just registering to vote, but like Victor, when we talked previously, I mean, you did more than just get involved. You know, you, you put your money where your mouth is at a very young age getting involved in politics and being the youngest Biden delegate, I think, out there ever, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it really all, it, it's about getting involved in every way, large and small. I mean, you can get involved in your local government. You can volunteer. You can intern. Um, it, it really doesn't matter how you get involved. It's just a question of getting up and getting involved. And, you know, one person, you know, you feel like you can't do much. But if everybody is that one person, then we're all involved. And, and then we can actually change some things. Totally. Glenn Kirshner, thank you so much for joining us today. This was such an amazing conversation going through all the Trump cases and hopefully justice matters and DOJ will realize that and we'll get an indictment very soon for um, all of the crimes that he has committed. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great being with both of you. Thanks, Glenn. That was an interesting episode, Jill. Um, in the remaining time that we have left, I know we have about seven minutes. Um, let's, I think it would be good to talk about Jimmy Carter because over the weekend, um, we heard that he opted to uh, go to hosp or guess, um, uh, hospice care instead of uh, being in the uh, hospital. And I know you served in the Carter administration, so you can speak about what Jimmy Carter was like as a president, just his character. Because for a lot of young people, I was talking to some people, and I told you this the other day, that a lot of young people don't really realize what Jimmy Carter did as president. And so I'm curious if you can enlighten us and just talk about his legacy and, and kind of where we are. And obviously, we send our um, well wishes and strength and just our, our prayers to him and his entire family during this difficult moment. But just as a matter of reflection, what do you think we should remember about Jimmy Carter? Well, let me just say, I do think thoughts and prayers are in order. Whereas when it comes to gun violence, gun violence I don't. Yeah. We need action yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, President Carter was an amazing, amazing person of great moral character. And I am very privileged to have been able to serve in his administration. And I can talk about one particular thing that I appreciate from him, which was I was general counsel of the army. And one of my proudest accomplishments was the abolition of the Women's Army Corps, something mm -hmm. that he authorized and approved and legislation, it took legislation. Now, for those who don't know, um, what that means. The Women's Army Corps was how women were able to serve their country. But it had only two positions for generals, the head of the Women's Army Corps and the head of the Nursing Corps. Yeah. All other generals were part of the regular army and women weren't allowed in the regular army. Women also weren't allowed in an integrated basic training or at the military academies. And during his tenure, all the military academies were opened to women and the Women's Army Corps was abolished and women who had only had one star suddenly had two and three. And now you have a lot of women who are serving in high ranks. 
So yeah. it's yeah. been a very, very big accomplishment. He also, I mean, we can't skip the Camp David Accord, which is one of the most enduring legacies of his administration and uh, one of the most important for peace in the Middle East. So he accomplished a lot. He had a lot of hurdles during his tenure, which was a hostage crisis and a, a gas price increase that was incredible. I remember waiting in line for hours to get gas because it wasn't hmm. just the price. It was not available. And wow. we were lining up to get gas. And that definitely hurt him. Um, and that's why he did not win re-election. But he went on to yeah, yeah. post-presidency. Right, right. He really was uh, someone who gave back to his community through the Carter Center. He did a lot for free elections around the world and for world peace. He continued to teach Sunday school in his local church. He continued to live in the house that he and his wife had bought in 1961. He did wow. not on big corporate boards. He did public service. And that's yeah. who Jimmy Carter was. Um, and I wish we had that one photo of Jimmy Carter right the day after he got eye surgery. He was in Nashville and he was helping build homes. And that was at the age of 95. I mean, just so committed to public service. Yeah, he, he was wonderful. And he should be thought of fondly right now. And he will be remembered very, very well. Yeah. And uh, I think if you just even just Google him, guys, yeah. you yeah. will find out about all the accomplishments and all the hurdles of his administration. He also brought in the largest number of women to his administration. Um, you. Formed, what was he at? We formed a thing yeah. called the Old Girls Network. Oh, instead of oh, Old wow. Boys Network. And um, so I was able to meet a lot of unbelievably wonderful women who were serving in that administration. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Um, and, and we really hope that he you know, is, is well, his family is well during this time. Um, one other thing before we go, last week we had Ben Wickler on to talk about the Wisconsin Supreme Court election. Today is primary day in Wisconsin. So if you are in Wisconsin or if you know anyone in Wisconsin, go out there and vote. If you know anyone in Wisconsin, tell them to go out there and vote. Um, today is an important day in the state. Um, anyone who... Uh, is curious about it, go listen to our episode with Ben Wickler. He really put it into context about how much is at stake in this Supreme Court election and why it matters. So go to uh, wisdoms.com slash volunteer if you want to uh, take action. And again, if you are in the state, there is still time to vote. Um, that is all we have time for you today. But thank you so much for watching this episode of iGen Politics. We hope to see you next week for another episode. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe to us right here on youtube.com slash Politicon so you don't miss a single episode. And we'll be back next week. You can also find us wherever you follow your podcast. So leave us a five-star review and rating wherever you follow us so you don't miss an episode. And also that helps us extremely. Uh, so do that. And we will see you next week. Thanks so much for tuning in.